Put your creek on. Hi there and welcome to episode 7 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thank you for choosing to listen to this painstakingly produced content. It's very much appreciated and you're very welcome. Welcome to Get Your Creek On. That is the same lady who contributes the Pottery Corner introduction to the Poetry Corner section. See last week's episode for an explanation of that. And I'm going to try dropping her in here and there just to mix things up a bit and to get a female voice into the mix occasionally to preempt any claims of rampant sexism, something we on Get Your Creek On are wholeheartedly against. This podcast will make much more sense to you if you've watched the episode of Jonathan Creek in question, which today is Series 2, Episode 2, Time Waits for Norman. If you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, then questions really have to be asked as to why you're tuning into the seventh goddamn episode of this bloody podcast. Are you okay? Time Waits for Norman aired on the last day of January 1998. Friendly Australian man, day the biz out. Episode Synopsis A plane lands at the airport, well, where else, and Mr Norman Stangerson has his passport checked as he passes through and heads for his car. Maddie and her agent Barry are at the house of Antonia Stangerson, who appears to be a book agent of some kind. Maddie admires a massive clock, one of several, and Antonia remarks on the irony of her love of collecting timepieces, while her husband Norman is temporophobic, which is a fear of time passing. Antonia tells Maddie how she loves the draft of her latest book, Murders That Baffled the World which describes the cases that she and Jonathan have worked together on. Antonia's had her art department mock up some images for the cover, showing Maddie and Jonathan. It turns out she hadn't realised Jonathan's actually a real person, and exclaims that finding this out has somehow made him less believable. Meanwhile, Jonathan's at the windmill with his accountant, who's wading through his paperwork. He amazes her with a trick involving a suitcase filled to the tits with invoices, and she is clearly enamoured with him. As Maddie and Barry drive home, they discuss Jonathan. Maddie says that the pair of them, by not getting together, are denying themselves pleasure with other people, and that Jonathan is clearly saving himself for her. It turns out he's doing anything but, and is in fact getting it on with Rebecca the accountant. During their post-coital chit-chat, we see that she is in fact bald. At Antonia's house, she's temporarily blinded having got chilly in her eye. I did that on a stag do in Aviemore once and it stung like buggery. Would not recommend. Shortly afterwards, husband Norman arrives home to find her still wiping her eyes, a young man standing next to her. This fellow, Lewis, has brought Norman's wallet back, having found it under the table Norman was sitting at at the Wimpy restaurant in Bishop Stortford. Norman can't understand how it got there, but Lewis says he dropped it the previous day when he'd visited for a bite to eat. Norman explains that this simply cannot be true, as he's just flown back in from New York, having been there for the last five days. Lewis, getting unreasonably angry and accusatory, 
argues that Norman was there yesterday and then storms off. Antonia doesn't know what to think. She ends up phoning his New York City office for confirmation that Norman was definitely in the Big Apple, which his colleagues provide. Later, in bed, Antonia notices a burn on Norman's foot. He claims it was from the shower in his hotel, but it makes her wonder even more because Lewis said he'd knocked coffee all over his foot in the wimpy. Maddie is there the next day, and she and Antonia talk it all through. Maddie, weirdly, goes for a look around the bedroom and ends up sniffing Norman's dirty socks for signs of coffee. It turns out he's watching her from the bath and tells her she won't get the story to check out. He doesn't even eat red meat, so why would he buy a hamburger? Later, he talks a bit about his obsession with time. What it is, where does it go, what happens to the present when it becomes the past and is no longer the present. He's a bit of an odd, wet guy, Norman, and presumably the wimpy burger chain was chosen for this episode because it kind of describes him. Maddie inspects the wallet that was returned. She looks at Norman's old business card for a firm he ran with a partner, and then she finds a slip of paper with a mysterious sounding sentence on it which Norman claims to have no knowledge of whatsoever. It reads, Oh, when I know to free hate, to sever no one. Later, Jonathan and Maddie discuss his fling with Rebecca the accountant, and he says that he feels trapped. They've got nothing in common, but he thinks that if he breaks it off, she'll be upset because she'll reckon it's due to her baldness, which she's very sensitive about. The pair meet again at Wimpy the next day and interrogate Lewis and other staff members about Norman. They don't find out much, but following a helpful discussion with a remarkably erudite hobo who lives on the pavement opposite, they end up getting hold of photos from an estate agent that clearly show Norman in the shop on the day in question. Norman's confronted with these and wonders aloud who the hell is doing this to him and why. Antonio is clearly doubting him. He heads back off to New York City for work, but tells her that he loves her, he isn't doing anything wrong, anything dodgy, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, Maddie has been trying to make Jonathan jealous by arranging an evening with a man called Rupert, but it hasn't worked out. She calls Jonathan and they discuss the case further, before deciding to go and chase down Norman's old business partner, Melvin Paulthrop. They find him trimming bushes in the garden. Maddie talks to him and shoves Jonathan off to go and sneak round inside his house. He's accosted by a small yappy dog and tries to distract it with a steak from the fridge, but it ends up attacking him. The dog, not the steak. Mel tells Maddie about his time working with Norman, and she shows him the cryptic scrap of paper from Norman's wallet, but Mel can't assist in any way. It then turns out this is in fact Mel's neighbour's house, not his, and as the elderly occupant returns and goes inside, she screams upon coming across a bloodied Jonathan. Jonathan still hasn't managed to cut ties with Rebecca, and ends up going to meet her parents at their farm. She talks about how she doesn't eat red meat, and also mentions Independence Day in passing, and this causes some thought marbles, trademarked, to roll around Jonathan's head. Antonia receives an awful phone call. There's been a terrible accident in New York and Norman has been killed by an Independence Day firework going off in his face. That's just the last thing you need. Jonathan's worked out the cryptic message, and only did so when he read it out aloud. Oh, when I know to free hate, to sever no one. O one nine O 
0208-238-2701. It's a phone number. Maddie and Jonathan head to Antonia's house and they're about to explain the solution to the mystery when something incredible happens. Norman walks in the door, alive and well. What's been going on here is that Norman has been living something of a lie. He's been sharing the job with Mel Paulthrop, who goes to New York City and does that part of the job while pretending to be Norman. Everyone over there thinks Mel is Norman, but what's Norman, the real one, been doing while pretending to be in America? It turns out he has another family altogether and has been spending time with them. The phone number is that of his other wife slash girlfriend. He tries to justify all this by saying that he's just been trying to love too many people. He'd been at Wimpy to get the voucher from a hamburger meal because he was collecting them to get a free football wall chart for his other wife's young son. I don't know if it's actually Norman's son and I don't really care. It was Mel who was in fact killed by a firework in New York, the poor bugger. Antonia and wet wipe Norman are left to figure out how the hell to move forward from this big old kerfuffle. The episode ends with Jonathan telling Maddie about how his dinner with Rebecca the previous day went really badly, but at least he's managed to break up with her. He gets annoyed when he looks at the approved cover for Maddie's book, which features their heads superimposed onto models' bodies. Episode Analysis A very different type of episode, this one. So far we've dealt mainly with murders and locked rooms, but this one was dissimilar in its impossible crimeness. There was still a death though, Mel Paulthrop leaving this mortal coil due to death by pyrotechnic, and that keeps up a record of at least one person dying in every Creek episode thus far. Of the seven stories, five have included a murder, that's 71.4%, and this is the second homicideless episode following on from No Trace of Tracy. It could be claimed there's slightly less tension in this episode, but the central mystery was still a bit of a head-scratcher. Norman was something of a wet blanket as a person, but I thought the acting he employed to hide his secret was fairly convincing. He was played by Irish actor Dermot Crowley, who has appeared in a few big films and the TV series Luther. His wife Antonia was portrayed by Deborah Grant and business partner Mel Paulthrop by Edward Halstead. I'm not sure whether he's credited at the end, but the stuntman who played Jonathan when he slips over in the kitchen deserves a mention here because his presence is so blatantly obvious and he looks nothing like Alan Davies. That is the second time this has happened, the first being when Jonathan fell down the stairs in the House of Monkeys, and on both occasions it was about as obvious as the changing of the actor playing Adam Klaus. Speaking of which, I mentioned last time that Adam Klaus was returning for Series 2, and I'd completely forgotten that there's absolutely no sign of him in this episode, so apologies for that. Hold tight and he'll be right back. The B-plot involving Jonathan getting ill-advisedly involved with his accountant offered a nice counterbalance to the main story and had some really amusing moments. Probably shouldn't laugh at how rude Maddie was about Rebecca's baldy head, but she did have some really funny lines on the matter. Didn't you get suspicious when you were running your fingers through her hair and she wasn't even in the room? 
and then also on the phone later when she said, sorry for interrupting, you're probably enjoying an intimate night with Rebecca, spraying her head with beeswax. Other enjoyable lines from Maddie included her using her time of the month as an excuse for being late, and Jonathan immediately knowing she was lying because he's been keeping track, and also mixing up a Sherlock Holmes tale with a status quo song. Never not a good thing to hear reference to the mighty quo. The solution to the mystery is of course one that really wouldn't fly nowadays due to the internet and so on. Everyone in the American office would have known what Norman Stangerson looked like, and the ploy with Mel couldn't have been pulled off. And why did Mel need a passport to fly anyway, a fake passport? He could have just used his own, surely. Although maybe the company was paying for the flights and buying the tickets in Norman's name. We'll just assume that's the case. Talking of flights and aeroplanes, do you know what else is a form of transport? Trains. And one of those is about to meander its way down the line towards... The Celebration of Location Information Station. The airport scenes featuring Norman and Mel were shot at Stansted Airport. I didn't even need to seek verification for this because I recognised it immediately having flown to and from London quite a lot for work in the past, and I vividly recall having to remortgage the house a few times in order to afford tickets for the Stansted Express into London. The Stangerson's house is on Lakeside Drive in Esher, a southwest London suburb. Real people who live or have lived in Esher include George Harrison, Eric Sykes, Chris Tarrant, and Roots Manuva, who it turns out is a person and not a band, as I'd always assumed. The branch of Wimpey was on Uxbridge Road in Ealing, West London, but like most if not all Wimpeys it has now long gone and is nowadays a coffee shop called Doppio. If you're flying into Stansted for your Time Waits for Norman locations tour, get the Stansted Express to Tottenham Hale, then the Victoria Line Tube to Victoria Station, change to the Circle Line to Paddington, then get the TFL Rail to West Ealing, and Doppio is a mere one minute walk from there. After getting your coffee, take three bus connections to Esher on the E3, 65 and K3 services, and from there it's only 12 minutes walk to Norman's house. How you get home from there is your problem. Enjoy! Creek Connections At 12 minutes 49 seconds, as Maddie and Jonathan talk to the tramp, he points to a building available over the road next door to Wimpy. The letting agent is called Cyverns, and its phone number is 01895 231 150. If you add each of these numbers together, you get 35. 35 is the minimum age a presidential candidate can be in the USA, Russia, Uruguay or the Republic of Ireland. The current Irish president, Michael Higgins, was born in the city of Limerick, which is home to the rugby stadium Thomond Park, which, in 2013, was named the world's best by rugby fans. It was just ahead on the list of Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane, a city whose most popular religious belief, according to the most recent census in 2016, is no religion. 
No Religion is the fifth track on the 23rd studio album by Van Morrison, whose mother was called Violet. Violet is one of the seven colours labelled by Isaac Newton when he divided the spectrum of visible light in 1672. Newton was, during his lifetime, both a warden and master for the Royal Mint, which, as well as manufacturing coins and bullion, produced the medals for the 2012 London Olympics, at which the men's road race cycling bronze was won by Alexander Kristoff from Norway. The dissolution of the union between Norway and Sweden took place on June 7, 1905, the same year that Chelsea Football Club was founded in London. Chelsea currently has players on its books called Mason Mount and Jamie Cumming. Those initials are the same as Maddie Magellan and Jonathan Creek. God, anyone else feeling bewildered? Another Creek connection next time. Pottery Corner <clears throat> Poetry, not pottery. I'm very pleased to say that the world's worst poet, William Topaz McGonagall, has again been resurrected from the grave and watched this week's episode before producing some words on what he saw. Without further ado, I'm very proud to present Lines on an Observation of Time Waits for Norman. Flying in on the red eye from LaGuardia or JFK, Norman Stangerson's life, I am sorry to say, has included a clandestine secret that is not okay. He hadn't told his wife about the secret girlfriend he kept hush-hush, and under the carpet his problems he did brush. Antonia really liked Maddie's new book, and Jonathan's existence for fiction she mistook, as they talked in the shadow of her collection of timepieces with their arms taken off, because their presence Norman's tolerance decreases. Jonathan was visited by his VAT inspector, to whom he was attracted like a bee is to nectar, they ended up having carnal relations, and he found out her hair had disappeared beyond its foundations. A young man called Lewis turned up to the Stangerson homestead returning Norman's wallet which he'd left in the shop where he fed, but the location of the purse's dropping was disputed, for Norman was in New York at work, all suited and booted. Young Lewis alleged hot caffeine splashed on Stangerson's shoe, but he claimed the burn was from water that out of a shower flew. Antonia was dubious. Was her husband bullshitting? Norman said no, it was an honest accident into which he was unwitting. Maddie discovered a curious note someone scrawled, while Jonathan wondered how best to ditch the lassie whose bald head was causing him to regret his amorous actions, and whose presence between him and Maddie caused factions. The wimpy staff were all completely useless. More helpful was a vagrant whose status was ruthless. He led them to photos that showed Norman red-handed, but he denied it all and claimed not to be the liar he was branded. JC and Maddie tracked down Mel Polthrop to garner more details. Their investigation was at risk of going off the rails, but Mel provided no info as he cut bushes in twine, 
and Jonathan was bitten by a yappy canine. Later at the farm, Jonathan almost slurped on bull semen as he tried to dump Rebecca to make himself again a free man. She mentioned Independence Day, which an idea gave Johnny, as she showed him pictures of her cattle most bonny. The mystery all subsequently came to a head after Polthrop was hit by a firework that left him dead, and the cryptic phrase turned out to be a mnemonic, leading to an explanation that Antonia welcomed like the plague bubonic. Mel and Norman were working as one, acting in cahoots, which was fine because together they had great attributes, and when Mel went to New York playing the role of his friend, Norman was elsewhere with his secret girlfriend. He was lying all along, his families were twofold, but now the ruse was up and he was buggered, all told. He claimed to have tried to love too many people, and probably cried that night in the position of fetal. And so ends this mystery of whereabouts and time. Jonathan didn't so much have to solve a crime as figure out a strange head-scratching conundrum. And he'll be back next time for another one. Pottery Corner Thanks very much indeed for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On. You can contact the show if that's something you feel inclined to do. Just email getyourcreekon at gmail.com or the Twitter handle is at creekget. You can support the show by telling all your friends about it and urging them to listen. Or if you don't have any friends, just tell random people in the street or in your workplace or on the internets. The next episode is The Scented Room, which starred an absolute legend of British comedy and is not one that you want to miss. The music you can hear over this outro section for those asking is a track entitled So So by an artist called Roof, and if you want you can now listen to it play out to its conclusion. Enjoy! I'm Toby, bye for now. (laughs) 